In October 2017, astronomers in Hawaii detected something that astronomers had never detected before, an interstellar object passing through our solar system. Something from out there, really out there, was zipping through our planetary neighborhood at nearly 200,000 miles per hour. Scientists at the University of Hawaii dubbed it Oumuamua, Hawaiian for scout. But what was this unexpectedly and oddly shaped guest exactly? It was briefly classified as an asteroid until new measurements found it was accelerating slightly, a sign that it was behaving more like a comet. But maybe Oumuamua is something else entirely. In a co-written paper last year, Avi Loeb, a theoretical physicist and the chair of Harvard University's astronomy department, theorized that Oumuamua is, quote, of artificial origin, perhaps a light sail, floating in interstellar space as a debris from advanced technological equipment. Alternatively, a more exotic scenario is that Oumuamua may be a fully operational probe sent intentionally to Earth vicinity by an alien civilization, unquote. I would guess that few papers in the history of the Astrophysical Journal Letters have received more attention than the one titled, Could Solar Radiation Pressure Explain Oumuamua's Peculiar Acceleration? Now, in addition to his previously mentioned academic duties, Professor Loeb is the founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative and chairs the advisory committee of the Breakthrough Foundation's Starshot Initiative. In 2012, Time Magazine selected Professor Loeb as one of the 25 most influential people in space. He's here today to discuss federal leadership on science and technology innovation, how to think about our future of space exploration, and, oh yeah, Oumuamua. Avi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, I think growing up, for me, it was as much Carl Sagan and his Cosmos TV series as it was Star Trek or Star Wars that got me interested in sort of what lies beyond our bit of shore here in the cosmic ocean. Now, a phrase made popular by Sagan was extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. What did you find so extraordinary about Oumuamua that made you willing to even raise the possibility that it isn't just a hunk of rock? And do you find it any less extraordinarily and tantalizing today uh, than you did a year or two ago? Yes. So this object uh, did not behave like a rock. Uh, it, uh, its orbit deviated from what you might expect based on the sun's gravity. And uh, that extra push that uh, its orbit exhibited is often uh, associated with uh, a cometary tail. Uh, when ice, water ice, evaporates on the surface of uh, comets, it gives them a push through the rocket effect. Uh, but we haven't seen any cometary tail around Oumuamua. And that's, uh, that's what triggered my interest in alternative interpretations, simply because it was an anomaly. This anomaly was not explained until now. There is no good explanation as to why we haven't detected a cometary tail. There is no evidence, there was no evidence for gas, uh, very tight limits on uh, carbon-based molecules. The only thing that it might be is pure ice, but even that is not a good explanation because the deviation uh, of the orbit does not match what you might expect based on the evaporation of ice, water ice, as a function of distance from the sun. So then I started thinking, what else could give it a push? And the only other thing that came to my mind is the sunlight uh, pushing on it, just like uh, uh, wind pushes on a sail, 
Uh, and this technology of uh, pushing on an object with light is being uh, developed right now by us uh, as a civilization. Uh, it's called the technology of light sails, uh, which can potentially drive a spacecraft close to the speed of light. And that's why it's very interesting. Uh, you don't carry the fuel uh, with the spacecraft. Instead, you're pushing it with light so that it can reach the speed of light potentially and bridge across the very large distances uh, between stars. So um, we calculated that um, potentially sunlight can do it if this object is very thin, uh, sort of like a light sail. And we put those sentences in a scientific paper that was accepted for publication within a few days. Uh, and uh, that's pretty much it. I didn't expect, uh, we didn't have a press release. We didn't expect uh, much uh, of a backlash. Um, simply because, you know, this is the standard procedure for doing science at the frontiers. Uh, when you see an anomaly, you try to explain it with an out-of-the-box idea because all the ideas in the box do not seem to match the evidence. And I did that, you know, a year ago about uh, the fact, you know, there was a report that the gas in the universe uh, was much colder than we expect at very early times. And I tried to explain it in terms of uh, the dark matter. Most of the matter in the universe is not visible to us. Uh, so if that matter had a little bit of electric charge, it could cool the ordinary matter. And, you know, that was published in uh, Nature magazine, which is a very prestigious journal. But nobody complained about uh, considering an out-of-the-box idea. And for some reason, <laughs> on this issue of Oumuamua, there was a lot of uh, response from the media, from, from the public. That's understandable. The public is very interested. But uh, a lot of reservations from my colleagues, which I, I don't fully understand because, you know, in my view, doing science is maintaining uh, your childhood curiosity. Right. Uh, where you are learning about the world, willing to take risks, willing uh, to make mistakes. You know, it should be part of the job. But for some reason, even scientists that get tenure are extremely cautious about uh, the way they might be perceived. They're not willing to take risks. Uh, and I find that to be destructive to the notion of, you know, going into the unknown and trying to figure out something that was not known before. You, if you don't allow yourself to make mistakes, you never make discoveries. All right. Well, let me take one step back because you mentioned sort of the acceleration issue that it, it accelerated and you had to figure out why why that happened. And uh, I think a lot of the coverage has been about that. But I think equally as interesting is, is, is the idea that if you think it is not something that's artificial, that you think it is an asteroid or a comet that comes from out of our solar system, that as, as we sort of conceive, as we think about how many of those are sort of generated in a solar system, we really wouldn't expect to see one from another solar system. It would be, it would be so rare that to think that we would see it during our lifetimes must mean that we're wrong and there's actually a lot more of that stuff out there than what we think, correct? Exactly. Uh, in, in fact, a decade ago, we tried to forecast whether the PANSTAR survey, the, the, this uh, telescope that detected Oumuamua, will see any interstellar object. And we, we forecasted that it will not. Uh, and the actual detection, the mere detection of uh, the first interstellar object was surprising. Uh, and we expected the population to be much more rarefied so that we won't see anything. 
Uh, and beyond that, um, the properties of this object seem to be quite different from the typical asteroid or comet that we see in the solar system. It's much more extreme in its shape. Uh, it's at least 10 times longer than it is wide. Uh, and uh, there was no heat detected from it. So uh, given uh, the amount of light that it reflects, uh, we can say that it's uh, rather compact because otherwise we would see its heat. And that implies that it's quite shiny, that it reflects uh, sunlight quite well. And that's another uh, fact that appears to be consistent with the idea of a light sail. I did not claim that it is a light sail and that it is of artificial origin. All I said is, let's put it on the table and consider it as one of the possibilities and try to collect more evidence on this particular object or wait for the next one to show up. You know, a lot, most of the time in science, uh, we and, have... Oh, and you would expect to see, and if this, and if this is... If this is just a comet, some sort of comet or asteroid, um, the, obviously there's a lot more out there than what we thought. We should actually expect to see another one then, correct? Right. And uh, in fact, in, in a few years, uh, there would be a much um, more powerful telescope that much more sensitive that should see an object like that every month. If, if these objects are moving on random trajectories and uh, there are so many of them, uh, we would see many more. And of course, then we could figure out why are these interstellar objects so strange? If we don't find more, then it would look even stranger. It would mean that it was on a, a, a previously designed orbit that was not random. That was its purpose was to probe the inner part of the solar system. So, so we have an object that probably shouldn't be there. It looks weird, and it's acting weird. Um, and and just one more thing on the on the on the light sail or, or or solar sail. What's interesting about that technology is that something which is sort of theoretically possible in a way that's that that a lot of sort of the propulsion systems that you see in science fiction, you know, they all violate the laws of physics. It's almost like magic. But that's not the case with a light sail. Like that that can happen, as you're saying. We can build that. Right. And in fact, uh, I chair an advisory committee for a project named Starshot, whose goal is to develop this technology so that we can reach the nearest star, uh, Proxima Centauri, in the Alpha Centauri system, uh, within a couple of decades. Um, the distance to that star is four light years. And that means that it takes light four years to reach that star, uh, if there is a civilization there, they don't actually know yet the results of the previous election in 2016. Uh, and so um, uh, it's, uh, it takes a long time uh, unless you travel at a fraction of the speed of light. And our goal is to reach about the fifth of the speed of light. The only way to do that uh, appears to be the light sail technology. So we just started the development of this uh, technology and are working on it. Uh, but it's possible that other civilizations out there uh, have already um, are much more mature than we are, much more advanced. And for them, it's uh, it's the most common technology that they use for space travel. And perhaps some sort of other civilization, their explorers, their discoverers, and they have may maybe they sent out numerous of these probes throughout, you know, throughout the universe to see what they could find. And maybe one of them just kind of rolled through our neighborhood. Like yes, field, our right. civilization sent out, we sent um, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 that are making their way out of the solar system. 
but it's quite possible that there are many more, that there is much more traffic out there. And um, the only way to find out is to observe the sky or to <laughs> leave the solar system and check what's going on there. Um, and it would be very difficult to see these objects. So we found Oumuamua only because it passed very close to the sun uh, and it reflected sunlight so we could see it. Another way to find such objects is by using the Earth as a detector. Uh, when an object like that would go, uh, would collide with uh, the Earth, it would pass through the atmosphere of the Earth and burn up. And uh, we see such uh, events, they are called meteors. And uh, in fact, um, I asked a student of mine, an undergraduate student, to look at all the meteor data and check if any of them came from outside the solar system. And we did find one very good candidate from 2014 uh, that appears to have originated from outside the solar system. This meteor was detected by sensors uh, that of, of the U.S. government. Uh, and uh, uh, there is an interesting story about um, uh, the data related to this meteor. Let me ask you, so since, since you wrote, uh, since you co-wrote that paper, um, you know, there has been criticism, uh, there, have been, there have been new explanations put forward. Has, have they lowered your confidence level, whatever that level might be, um, or raise it. Um, have you, have you walked back this uh, at all, this possibility again, whatever your confidence level happens to be over the past, uh, year or so? I base my assessment on evidence. Um, and there was no new evidence that came about since, um, we wrote uh, that paper, there were uh, other papers suggesting, well, maybe it's not a light sail. Uh, maybe it's a very uh, porous uh, object. In fact, what you need is an object that has a density that is lower than the density of steam. Uh, a very uh, low density object such that it can be pushed by sunlight. Uh, and one of the people that uh, proposed this uh, is an expert on comets, and he argued that it cannot be a comet for sure. Uh, so maybe it's sort of a cloud of gas floating in space, and we think that it is an object uh, like a comet. Uh, to me, that sounds much more uh, far-fetched than, uh, you know, a solid object that is simply thin and being pushed by sunlight. Um, and uh, so these proposals that were made, uh, we thought about them when we wrote the paper, but didn't find them likely, and I still don't find them likely. The only thing that will change my view is if we had additional data, additional evidence. You know, and I, I wouldn't mind being shown wrong if, if I saw, for example, an image of this object and it would be clearly a rock, you know, I would be convinced immediately and say that, you know, it was a mistake. Uh, science is a process of learning. You know, Einstein, Albert Einstein, that we all admire, made the three mistakes towards the end of his career. He argued that black holes don't exist, gravitational waves don't exist, and we detected both of them uh, a few years ago. Um, and he also argued that quantum mechanics uh, is very weird. Um, and he was wrong about his assessment of quantum mechanics, the interpretation of quantum mechanics. So, you know, making mistakes is part of exploring the unknown. 
And we should accept that. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, having a taboo on, on a possibility just because of social pressure or because there is a whole literature of science fiction and UFO reports that are not credible, right. you know, that to me sounds non-scientific. Uh, that's psychological. That has to do with social uh, you know, trends. And whatever is uh, popular on Twitter has nothing to do uh, with you know, what this object is. Right. Is it the case? Because you, you just said, I, I am persuadable. I can be persuaded uh, that I'm wrong. Do you think uh, your critics or these other skeptics, do you think they're persuadable ultimately that this is an, an artificial object built by somebody else, not from this earth? Are they persuadable or is that just so either they're not publicly persuadable or... They, they they will continue to look for a natural explanation, no matter what. Oh no, they are definitely persuadable. Uh, we just need enough evidence uh, to sh- demonstrate. But they put the threshold uh, far <laughs> higher than um, for you know in, in the context, for example, of conventional studies of the dark matter in the universe or, uh, you know, people talk as part of the mainstream on extra dimensions that we don't just live in uh, three spatial dimensions in t- plus time, but there, there are additional dimensions we can't see. And that's part of the mainstream. People talk about dark matter being this and that particle that we have never detected. And that's part of the mainstream. Uh, and so there are ideas that are highly speculative that became popular just because a large enough group of people endorsed them. But that doesn't mean that they're correct. Uh, Science is about evidence. And my point is that we should not put blinders because on our eyes, you know, on our telescopes, because when the church came to Galileo and put him under house arrest, that didn't change the fact that, that the earth moves around the sun. You know, the, that, that doesn't matter as to what people do to each other, whatever the object is, it is. So what, so what would sort of the next step be? Do we build something fast enough so we can go chase this thing down and get a better look at it? No, we don't have the technology right now. If we had, for example, Starshot, the, the spacecraft of Starshot could easily chase it down and take photographs. That's why we need to develop technologies that allow us to Can that be built in the next generation? Yeah. So, I mean, if if we work on this technology, eventually we will be able to chase things like that down quite quickly. But with chemical uh, rockets, um, we can't. And uh, 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 that's a limitation. And so all we can do is wait for the next one to show up. And, and then, of course, everyone should monitor it and obtain as much information as possible. This time around, people assumed that it's a, a natural piece of rock and didn't take as much data as we could have taken. Have other astronomers, physicists come to you and said, I think you're on to something, but I'm not going to talk about this in public? Yes. Okay. <laughs> that must be very frustrating for you. Not at all. Um, you know, I'm, I'm willing to 
put, uh, as they say in the military, uh, I'm willing to put my body on the barbed wire <laughs> so that others can uh, proceed to a better future. Um, and uh, I don't mind, you know, it's completely irrelevant to me as to what other people are saying. I mean, I, I'm trying to stick to what I know and, and use the laws of physics and, uh, you know, consider all possibilities. And, and the fact that I'm uh, on my own on this doesn't really matter. You know, I don't need the people... Mm. Uh, behind me in order to argue something because I know over the course of my career there were many instances where I promoted an idea that was not popular at the time and then it became the most popular idea that a lot of people are working on and so I, I decided not uh, to this not to uh, pay too much attention to uh, public opinion if, if we were able uh, to build uh, a craft you know, using a, a, a light sail or maybe some other technology to go out and sort of chase down Oumuamu or, or something similar, would it be important that this was a manned vehicle or or that, wouldn't that really matter to you? No, I, I think um, humans are not um, uh, very well uh, suited for space travel. Um, it's not at all clear that they can survive um, uh, for years in space uh, simply because they, their bodies will be bombarded by cosmic rays. You know, we are protected here on Earth and actually also on, on the space station by the magnetic field of the Earth that blocks uh, energetic particles from reaching us. And, but once you go to space uh, well beyond the protection, the protective womb of the Earth, um, the, you're exposed to uh, 200 times more energetic particles per unit time. And, and so within a few years, your brain uh, basically can, each of the cells in your brain could um, be significantly damaged by an energetic particle unless you are protected. And, and, and so it's non-trivial to send humans to, for long periods of time into space uh, unprotected. And uh, sending robots sounds to me as a much more natural approach. Um, and they would, uh, you know, they would uh, carry uh, everything we need in order to perform the job. We, uh, we can equip them with artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. with uh, 3D printers. And uh, in principle, they can use the raw materials uh, at the target to build whatever we want. If, if we have a blueprint, you know, we could even deliver life to places using robots and uh, or construct life there once we understand how to synthesize life. And, and there are laboratory experiments where people are trying to create synthetic life in the laboratory. If we are able to do that, we can produce uh, life elsewhere and out of uh, the blueprint uh, of life here on Earth. And instead of transporting people or, or biological systems there, we can just build them over there from the raw materials. There have been other sort of, for people who are, who are interested in, you know, whether there's life and also intelligent life out there somewhere, there have been other anomalies. The one, you know, I, you know, off the top of my head was the, uh, it was the famous wow signal, which is a very strong sort of radio burst uh, that we detected back in 1977. That's, I guess, never been fully, fully explained. Where, where does sort of Oumuamua rank among sort of the, the anomalies that suggests that there could be life out there? It's very different. Uh, if, if it is artificial in origin, uh, then it is a message in a bottle. So it's a physical object that visits us 
uh, that carries that information rather than light. Uh, all the other signals that we are studying in astronomy are associated with, with light, um, more recently with gravitational waves, but most of astronomy is about light. And uh, therefore, it's of very different nature because a physical object can carry much more information uh, if you were to capture it. So, for example, if there is a meteorite that you identify on the surface of the Earth that was artificial in origin, we could study it and learn much more about uh, the civilization that sent it than by trying to detect the signal of light that they sent out. Um, now, what changed since the days of Sagan is that now we know that a quarter of all the stars have a habitable planet like the Earth, meaning a planet with a surface temperature similar to that of the Earth, roughly the size of the Earth. And uh, that implies that, in principle, you can have liquid water on the surface of such planets and the chemistry of life as we know it. If you roll the dice, um, tens of billions of times uh, for all these planets in the Milky Way galaxy, surely uh, there is a high likelihood that you will get the same outcome from the same initial conditions. And to me, that's a very strong argument that we are not special, that we should have cosmic modesty. Let me ask you, if, if there's further evidence and examination of this object, or maybe we'll see something uh, similar to it, and sort of the general conclusion is that, yeah, this is artificial. Where do you think your your the, your paper, your paper, could solar radiation pressure explain Oumuamua's peculiar acceleration? If that turns out to be right, where does your paper rank among the most important science papers ever written? Uh, is, would it be above or below uh, Van Leeuwen Hook's uh, paper about the invisible world of microorganisms from 1673? Would it rank right up there with that one or be the most important paper? In my view, uh, the question of whether there is life elsewhere is the most fundamental question that we can ask. Um, it doesn't just educate us as to whether we are alone in the universe, but it opens new perspectives uh, about our place uh, in the universe. Uh, and, you know, we might not be the smartest kid on the block. So the second question is, okay, if there is another kid, uh, is it much smarter than we are? And what can we learn from him or her? Uh, and um, it's quite likely that if there is another advanced civilization, that they are much more mature than we are. And uh, by now they have answers to questions that we are struggling with. And they have technologies that would look like magic to us. And they would be a good approximation to God when we first establish contact. Because there would be phenomena that we can't really understand that take place in front of our eyes. And we could learn a lot from that encounter. There will be new frontiers of uh, study. Uh, for example, astrolinguistics, how to communicate with such civilization. You know, astropolitics, how to negotiate with them. Astroeconomics, almost everything that you can add astro to uh, will, will thrive as a new frontier. And so I think it if it's real, if, if there is evidence, conclusive evidence for an alien advanced civilization, it would have a huge impact on our society. A couple minutes ago, we were talking about whether you know, it would be important to send a, a manned uh, mission, uh, whether it's to uh, uh, further investigate Oumuamua or, or, or elsewhere. And this is, you know, the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Do you have any interest in, in mankind creating 
moon bases or creating bases on Mars and becoming uh, a multi-planetary civilization. Does that hold any sort of interest for you? Yes, I do think that uh, we, we should think about space as the ultimate frontier because the conditions on Earth uh, eventually will become not habitable. Uh, it could either be due to an impact by an asteroid that is heading our way and will collide with the Earth and create a nuclear winter, or it could be due to the fact that in the long term, the sun, you know, in about half a billion years, the sun will uh, heat up and boil off all the oceans on Earth. So one way or another, it's clear that we will have to move elsewhere. And we don't want to keep all the eggs in one basket as we do right now. And uh, we need to start the process of developing colonies in other places. And the moon would be the first, of course, uh, step, then uh, Mars, uh, and uh, then beyond that, uh, perhaps going to other stars. Uh, but every long journey starts with the first step. And uh, I do believe that uh, we should uh, construct uh, the infrastructure that allows humans to live on the moon. Uh, there are many benefits for science, for example, uh, on the moon. You can, uh, uh, for example, in the context of astronomy, you can put observatories that would be much more effective than those on Earth because there is no atmosphere there. You could also study the, the moon as a detector of uh, those interstellar objects that we talked about because they keep bombarding the moon and the if they carried, for example, evidence for life outside the solar system, we could detect it uh, because they were not, they didn't burn up on their way to the moon's surface and there is no geological activity on the moon. So all the impacts that the moon suffered deposited matter on its surface that we can collect and study. So there is a lot to be learned from the moon, also as a detector of debris that impacted on it in the past. Objects like Oumuamua every now and then collide with the moon. And we just need to study the soil on the surface of the moon. And the only way to do that is by having a scientific uh, expedition over there, uh, not just uh, visits of very short duration, but actually a sustainable base, uh, the type that NASA is talking about right now, uh, the new um, uh, initiative of the Trump administration. Um, as we kind of get toward the end, one thing I know I have to ask you because uh, my followers, not to mention the folks on Twitter, uh, who I always tweet out the podcast too. I know they're going to want to know, uh, know your thoughts about the great filter hypothesis, which for people who are unaware of it is the idea that since we have not observed an extraterrestrial civilization, given all the stars, and now we know all the planets, that there must be some step in the process of, of, of life and a civilization that acts as a filter so that we don't see it. Maybe it's very difficult for intelligent life to arise or civilizations have a very short lifetime, or the period in which they might reveal their existence is very short, that something goes wrong, and that's why we don't see extraterrestrial civilizations. Do you have any thoughts about the Great Filter? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do think the most natural uh, explanation is that they have a short lifetime, because our technology develops on a few-year timescale right now exponentially. Uh, you know, the car that we are driving right now is very different than cars that were developed a few years ago. Um, and uh, uh, if you extrapolate that into the future, it's a very rapid development. Within centuries, technologies will be unrecognizable to us. Uh, 
Uh, and so um, we also, by doing so, we develop the means for our own destruction uh, because the same technologies could potentially cause a catastrophe on Earth. Uh, and so to me, it sounds plausible that uh, advanced technological civilizations uh, eventually destroy themselves uh, within a period of, uh, you know, several millennia. And that may explain why we don't see them very often. But that doesn't mean that we can't find evidence for them because we will find relics from them. It's sort of like doing archaeology, but in space. By digging deep into space, you can find evidence, traces for ancient cultures that existed a long time ago. Now, now, of course, despite the risk of becoming an advanced technological civilization, destroying yourself, you would like the United States to become a more advanced technological civilization. <laughs> I just want to briefly mention uh, your paper, Federal Leadership of Future Moonshots. You would like you would like us to do more uh, scientific R&D, do it somewhat differently, maybe just you know briefly explain sort of what that paper is about. Right. So uh, the moon uh, was clearly um, a very important target for uh, developing the technologies uh, that we currently have through the Apollo mission. And um, the, the question is, what should be the future moonshots? And I do believe that the federal um, government has uh, a very important role in inspiring uh, the future moonshots. Uh, uh, right now, the landscape uh, is such that the uh, innovative R&D uh, is initiated in universities, in academia, but also in the private sector. And uh, the federal government has a very important role in uh, inspiring both of these uh, to come up with, um, you know, new projects in, in directions, frontiers that are of great interest, both for national security and the economy. And uh, I think it's time to uh, explore visionary projects that go beyond uh, the, the dream of the Apollo mission that could involve space, but could involve also uh, artificial intelligence or gene editing. Uh, there are many frontiers right now that are exciting, and it's time to think big and uh, be a visionary uh, at the federal level. Um, and uh, the government can provide a sense of direction, a, a set of challenges that are uh, inspiring both the private sector and the academic uh, community to, to conduct the frontier research and keep the U.S. at the forefront of science and technology worldwide, uh, the position that it always had over the years. Would you like to see a, you know, we have an election uh, you know, coming up in 2020. Would you like to see a presidential candidate say, you know what, it should be a national goal to produce a, a, a starship that can fly at 20 percent of the speed of light uh, before the decade is over or something like that? Would, that. would you like to see something like that? Uh, well, that's a very specific uh, example. I, I would like to explore um, uh, various frontiers, you know, not necessarily just in space. Sure. Um, and uh, but yes, definitely, I think it's time for us to think big again. Uh, since the Apollo program, uh, we haven't had the kind of engagement and inspiration that uh, engulfed the entire country. Uh, 
It's uh, being said that um, uh, when uh, President Kennedy visited NASA, um, uh, one of the janitors uh, was asked, um, what is your role here? And he said, I'm helping to send a man to the moon. Uh, whether that encounter was a fact or, or fiction, uh, it's undeniable that the federally directed the space race captured the attention, enthusiasm and curiosity of the nation. Uh, and so what I would like to see is a similar visionary uh, project that captures the imagination of young kids and brings them into science and technology. My guest today has been Avi Loeb. Avi, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you.